If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Judges. And just kind of kind of put your finger there and we'll talk a little bit and we'll we'll get there and we'll get to a couple other passages and I'll make sure that you get out in time for uh for whatever it is you're going to do. Uh I tell you that because, you know, last week kind of had an embarrassing moment uh which really pales in comparison to any of this, I guess, but was preaching at Haven last week, and I got completely confused on where I was, and which is not a big deal, you know, Haven, Wichita, that, that's not that really critical. But what I got really confused on is what time services got out. And I was off by 30 minutes. I was going long, not short. So anyways, uh, luckily I'm back to Wichita and I know how things go. Back in the 5th century, during the height of the Greco-Persian War, there was this battle. And it's kind of funny because it, you know, they made a movie about it entitled The 300. And it was about 300 brave Spartan warriors that for three days held back the Persian army, this huge army that was conquesting the entire world. And for three days held them off in this narrow little area, would not let them get past it was an okay movie. It's, you know, a little bit of rewriting history a little bit. The truth is there were a few more fighting than just the 300, and you kind of, but it, you get the point. We like a movie like that, don't we? We enjoy a movie that celebrates courage, that celebrates valiantry, that celebrates sacrifice. We like a good fight, especially one sort of against the odds and everything like that. We enjoy those kind of movies. They appeal to us. They give us great pride. We enjoy going to San Antonio or to hear about and to think about the Alamo and to ponder the bravery of those men that had no earthly chance of winning, but yet they fought. And to go to the Alamo is to appreciate something more than just the fighting, to understand that that battle changed the war. Had they not fought so bravely, had they not fought so valiantly, had they just given up, Santa Ana's army would have just walked on through, and the war would have been very different. We enjoy those kinds of stories. We enjoy stories of heroism in modern times and modern wars. It is impossible, I think, for any responsible person to stand at Arlington Cemetery unmoved and unfazed as they change the guard at the Temple of the Unknown. Grave of the Unknown Soldier. Because there's something about that valentry that appeals to us. And there's something about that that inspires us to try to do the same things in our own lives. To somehow try to replicate that as we look in, in this very morning, you are engaged in some sort of battle. You may be on a little bit of a reprieve. It's not going on right now, but it's going to hit you first thing in the morning. 
something is going on, some battle, and you are in the, the course of preparing for it. You are getting ready for it. And this morning, as much as the story of the 300 is exciting and, and the Alamo is exciting, what I want you to get a sense of is that every now and then, sometimes that idea of battle preparation seeps in and all of a sudden it causes us to think just a little bit wrong and a little bit different than we really should. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Judges chapter 7. And we're going to read the story about 300 men. And this is very important. and we're, It's a simple story, really. It's a very simple story about Gideon. And we know, you know that it, it's a story that we oftentimes will tell in VBS. It's a story that has been spoken of numerous times. It's, you know, to be honest, what kind of gathered in my mind this morning is it really kind of started several weeks ago. I was driving around Dallas, and it was, and one of the things, you know, it's always tough to find a radio station, and so I'm kind of, I tend to kind of listen to some of the Bible stations, and you know, it's enjoyable just to kind of listen to different sermons and different things like that. And I was, and I don't even know where the guy was from or anything, but he was talking about this passage, and I thought, hey, this is kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. And then all of a sudden, he just said two or three of the dumbest things I'd ever heard of. And I don't say that to make fun of him or anything like that. If I wanted to make fun of him, I'd tell you who it was. But I don't say that at all. Instead, it goes to the way that we look at this story and how we miss something so very, very important. Because if you look at it, you know, here comes, you know, in chapter 7, Gideon and his army are going to fight. And they're going to take on some people that outnumber them. He's going to take on some people that have greater strength than he does. Because remember, at this point in time, you know, remember the whole story of Gideon starts with him, you know, threshing wheat in a white, you know, hiding the smallest of the least family, the odds against them. And so in chapter 7, we bring forth this army, and they're camped. And in verse 2, there's a problem. So Gideon is going to lead this army. Gideon gathers together everybody that can fight, everybody that might be or possibly willing to fight. And in verse 2, in kind of more of a modern translation, God says to Gideon, Oh, whoa, general, we got too many people. In verse 2, despite the fact that even with the group that they had in the very beginning, they were outnumbered, outmanned, outarmed. God says in verse 2, we've got a problem here, Gideon. We've got too many people. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. Gideon, we've got too many people. Why is that? Lest Israel become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. And that's the passage that we tend to overlook just a little bit. We like the story of how we whittled down from this great group of people down to, you know, 22,000 and there was 10,000. And we like to get to the story about how they go to the water and they drink the water. And somehow, you know, well, if they drink it this way, they go home. If they drink it this way, they stay and fight. 
And I'd listen to that guy on the phone, you know, on the radio talk about how, oh, okay, well, would God realize he needed good warriors? And therefore, you know, depending on how they, they, they brought the water up to their mouth or bent down to pick it up, that determined whether or not they'd be a good warrior. And I thought that's the silliest thing I'd ever heard of. It was never about the water. It was never about how they drank. It was never about if they were scared or not. It was never about any of that. The story of the 300 is rest right there in verse 2. There were too many people. And what God didn't want to because God knew that they were going to win. Victory was completely, it was assured at this point. It was never in doubt. It was never in question. God's issue right then and there was, I can't let my people get boastful. I cannot let my people, in verse 2, say, my own power has delivered me. And I tell you that this morning, because if you're anything like me, Whenever you've got this kind of trial or that kind of trial or this, you know, kind of war or battle or anything like that in your one of the things that at least I have a tendency to do, and I'm probably not the only one, is to sit down and lay out a plan. And to amass all the troops and all the power and whatever army I can bring to that situation. And that's fine. I mean, that's prudent planning, I guess. But the danger, the very danger in my life is the same danger that God was worried about in Judges chapter 7 verse 2 is that when I am victorious, when there is victory, when I am delivered, when there are blessings, when things then turn and they go my way, the danger is that I'll say to myself, my own power has delivered me. To fully appreciate Judges chapter 7, we need to go back just a few pages, quite a few pages in fact. Turning your Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And what I want to do is we really understand the power of the message and what God, the principle that God is trying to get for us here in Judges chapter 7 verse 2. You really have to go back to Deuteronomy 20 and then we'll go forward a little bit into the book of Daniel to recognize just how God approaches, how God views the battles in our life. Which is to say, God views them as an opportunity for His glory to shine, for His power to be on display. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, now keep in mind, by this point in time, Israel, you know, they're out of Egypt, but they've really never known battle. They really had never known war. And they were about to go in, as they crossed over into the land, they were about to be right there in the midst of nations that were bigger than them, nations that were better armed than them, nations that had horses and chariots. They were nations that basically fought for a living. They were brutal. They were strong. They were the nations that the spies saw when the spies went over and came back and said, Oh, these guys are big. We can't do it. And so in Deuteronomy chapter, the entire chapter, what God does is God lays out what he calls the precepts and sort of the battle plan for when they go to battle. 
And he never talks about details. He never talks about specifics. Instead, the whole point of all of it, really in the very beginning, there's kind of two points. One, you know, The second point really has to do with utter destruction. But the very beginning, in chapter 20, verse 1, he says, when you go to battle, not if you go to battle or on the outside chance you might go to battle. Not that there's a possibility of battle or anything like that. When you go to battle and when you see, not it might happen, but it's going to happen. You are going to see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you. He says, hey guys, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to battle. And in essence, he says, you're going to be scared. Because you are going to see more people than what you have. You're going to see more horses than what you have. You're going to see more chariots than what you have. Folks, I think if ever there was a time or a passage that I turn to from time to time, it's this one. I don't deal with horses and chariots and people, but every now and then I deal with things. And I anticipate battles far greater than my ability to handle. But he says, don't be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Now it shall be, and he goes on to talk about this. He comes down to verse 4. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. Now understand, not for good luck, not for reassurance, the Bible says, to fight for you against your enemies. Okay, he's not just there as kind of this moral support or, or just kind of keep things light and airy and cheerful or anything like that. He is there to fight. And look how that verse ends in chapter, in verse 4, to save you. These are all very specific terms. These are all very, uh, these are not it might happen type language. This is the language of certainty. God will be with you. God will fight for you. And when that happens, he will save you. Now fast forward to the book of Joshua. And watch some things unfold in the book of Joshua. First of all, before we even jump over... Before we even get to, because we look at it and we want to just talk about how just, you know, really everything builds up. There's this battle of Jericho. Watch what happens basically for five chapters. And besides crossing over the river. But rather than crossing the river and getting right into the battle, look what happens. From... Verses 3, as they cross the chapter 3, after they cross chapter 4, when they set up the moral stones, chapter 5, Israel is circumcised. All of this has to do with their consecration to God. There they are on the shores, likely in a position where they can actually see the city. I don't know. But before they go into battle, God makes sure that they've got the right preparation. And notice what they're not doing. They're not waiting for reinforcements. They're not waiting for horses. They're not waiting for swords to arrive. They're not waiting for ammunition or anything like that. They're not waiting for the army to, to get bigger and, or anything like that. What they're doing this entire time is they are dedicating themselves to God. 
And that God is taking them through these very deliberate steps to remind them the God whom they serve and the God that is going to go out and fight for them. Skip ahead a few more chapters to Joshua chapter 10. And and there's nothing necessarily special about Joshua chapter 10. It's just the one I chose. But if you look through Joshua chapter 10, again, time and time again, not only does God remind, but God shows, and this is after numerous victories against people that they had no business fighting, let alone business people beating, and God reminds them of who he is and the victory that only comes through him. In chapter 10, verse 25, And after all of this, even after they had won, even after they had had great victories, in chapter 25, Joshua said to them, Do not fear, be dismayed, be strong and courageous, for for thus the Lord will do with all your enemies whom you fight. They just had a, a great battle. They just had a great victory. And what Joshua wanted them to remember is God did it. And God is going to do it again. God did it. God will do it again. Come down to verse 30. It says, The Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel, and he struck it, and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, he left no survivor. Thus he did to its king, just as done to the king of Jericho. Now, the important part of this, and again, this in one passage describes just a huge battle, utter defeat of the enemy. And when I say utter defeat, not just they won, but I mean just absolute destruction of an entire city, of an entire nation. But as it starts, verse 25, the Lord gave it to them. The Lord gave it to them. Come down two more verses. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel. The Lord gave it to them. And again, keep in mind at this point in time, Israel still is not an impressive army. Yes, they may have accumulated some of the things from the city, but what makes Israel so scary to the pagan nations, what makes Israel such a foe worthy of being scared, has nothing to do with the nation of Israel except for their dedication and their consecration to God and the God whom they serve. That is what brought the victory. It wasn't the preparation they did to get the swords or the shields or anything like that. It was the preparation they did to make sure that their reliance would be on God and God only. Skip on down to verse 42. Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time. Now, understand, in verse 42, verse 42 is just kind of a very simple thing. Okay, you know, and Joshua did this, this, and this. Okay, a lot went on. Verse 42, that's a big thing. That is a huge thing. But it says, Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time. Look at this. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Very simple sentence, but very, very powerful. Because it describes in the first half of the sentence the great victories that came to Israel, but in the second half it explains very simply, very succinctly, 
There isn't a lot of doctrine. There isn't a lot of commentary around it. Why does that happen? Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. We come on down to verse chapter 11, verse 1. And even though God is not specifically mentioned, you know, the, the concept here as we flow from the end of chapter 10 into chapter 11 is that God is doing these things. And it gets to the point in chapter 11, verse 1, that the king heard of all of this. Which is the Bible's way of saying at this point in time, Israel is establishing a reputation. There is something unique about Israel. It isn't in the fact that they are bigger. It isn't in the fact that they outnumber. It isn't because they are the most prepared or anything like that. It isn't because they've got the horses and the chariots or any of the things. It's because somehow there is something unique about them. And they are, begin, they are given victories that they don't deserve. They are given victories that they can't possibly earn. And so with that as the back, and that's the book of Joshua, folks. Israel winning battles that they have no business winning because the Lord their God fought for them. That as a backdrop. Then now come over to Judges chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Because it then shouldn't shock us after all of this time and all this way that Israel is winning and, and all these great things that is happening. That this entire land of milk and honey, because one of the things that we tend to forget, and because it's kind of gory, is that there were a lot of pagan nations that existed in this land that flowed with milk and honey. In order for God's people to come over there and exist, unfettered, and uninfluenced by the people, these pagan nations had to be destroyed. They had to be utterly destroyed in the manner that God talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And so by the time we get to the book of Judges, by the time we clear through the book of Joshua, there has been a lot of blood that's been shed. There have been a lot of pagan people fall by the sword of Israel because of the power of God. And so in chapter 7, it shouldn't shock us that the dilemma here, the feedback in chapter, in verse 1, is, whoa, 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 general, whoa, we got way too many people. Now, folks, that is such a tough concept for us to get because we want numbers, don't we? And there's times when numbers are great, and, and, and numbers are important. Don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not going to discount numbers. Dis, I mean, number, that's why we have a prayer chain. Because if one prayer is good, 700 is even better. But whether it's one prayer or whether it's 700 prayer, it's God that's doing things. And as long as we remember that, we're going to be okay. But the minute that we start kind of Assembling numbers and assembling plans and assembling strategies. The risk that we run is the risk of chapter 7, verse 2. That when these great things happen, that whether we mean to or not, we look at ourselves and we say, Wow, look at what I have accomplished. Skip ahead to Daniel chapter 4. 
Because Daniel chapter 4, and again, Daniel chapter 4, excuse me, Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is one of those passages, it's one of those stories, that it's great for VBS, we love those kinds of things. We just need to remember a couple things. You know, it's one of those stories where we could talk about how brave they were and how they worshipped God and how they worshipped, you know, even though that they, they were told not to. We could look at that and we could talk about the defiance of the king and we could talk about you know, how they, defi- and they made this choice of bravery. We could talk about how they walked into the furnace saying, oh, even if God doesn't save us, he's still the God and the God whom we'll serve. To me, though, I think the power comes down to verses 24 and 25. To really understand that. Because it would be so easy to look at them and to to applaud their heroics. And it's good to give them credit for that. To give them credit for a bravery that we will probably never need in our own lives. But the part that I like in this story is verses 24 through 25. Because in 24, the king Nebuchadnezzar looks in there... And basically asks the question, guys, didn't we throw three people in there? Nebuchadnezzar is watching this. He looks into this furnace and he says, didn't we throw three people in there? And they all looked around and they said, yep, we only threw three in. Then in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar is astounded. And he says, I see... And they're all walking around. We threw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I see a fourth. And he goes on to say, I see this fourth, and this fourth has the appearance like the son of the gods. He could tell the three mortal men. He could see them walking around. Their shape and their image and everything like that was unmistakable. But instead, what Nebuchadnezzar saw was the fourth, with the appearance of the Son of God. And folks, I tell you that story this morning, and it does tie into the fact that sometimes we bring way too much to a fight, when what we really need to make sure that we do is we rely on God. Because time and time again, From the very first battles of Israel all through the book of Judges and all to the end, what God wants us to understand, number one, is that he is the one that fights for us. But in the fighting for us, God needs to be relied upon and we need to give him credit. I love passage 25. Because as I have watched people close to me, as I have thought about the battles that I've gone through, somehow I couldn't help but do the math and realize that we'd come up with an extra person. I see Sister So-and-so going through something, but somehow it seems like more than Sister So-and-so. The Son of God is unmistakable. I watch Brother So-and-so encounter loss. And I can't help but see that furnace, if you will. 
It just seems like there's more than one person in it. When I look at the times that I have experienced victories that I didn't deserve, I you know, had no business having, when I think of some of the deliverance that I've gone through and I just can't help but feel like there was more than just me sitting in that chair. Oh, General, is what God wants to tell you this morning. As you ready yourself for battle, and as you think about all the things that you need to bring to the fight, all of the things that you need to do, I want you to ask yourself this morning, are you relying on God? Not just as a key to victory, not just as a key to deliverance, but as an opportunity for God and that's part of the reason that we have battles. It isn't just so that we live in a flawed world or anything like that. It's so that the deliverance of the Almighty can be seen in our lives. And may it never be said that any deliverance that we have is of our own power. This morning there is a deliverance for which you have absolutely zero power, zero control. Either you are or you aren't a child of God. And there is no greater victory this morning. There is no battle more significant this morning than the battle for your soul. And that is a battle for which you have absolutely no standing. It is by the very blood of Christ and the love and the grace of his Father. If you have not won that battle this morning... Forget all the other battles. Let's focus on that one this morning. If that battle has not been claimed on behalf of God for your salvation, we invite you to come. All together we stand and sing.